Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick Anderson. I'd like to give a shout out to you, my loyal listeners. I surpassed 12,000 downloads this week, and I am so grateful for your interest in the Sex Savvy podcast. And I hope you will continue to learn from the content of this podcast and share it with the people that you think may benefit. I have a backlog of questions that have come in through email and also through my phone line. And I decided to take an entire episode and address some of the questions that have come across my desk. I promised in the beginning of this podcast to answer your questions, and I take that commitment seriously. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in and start answering your questions. I will not cover everything today. I have more questions than I can answer. So there will be a part two and hopefully a part three, four, and five and continuing on and on and on as long as this podcast stays on the air. So keep those questions coming. You can email me at Kimberly at sexsavvypodcast.com or you could call me on my toll-free phone line, 844-SEX-SAVVY. I got a couple of questions over the last couple of months around sex therapy as a process and what happens in sex therapy. Here's one question I received uh, last week. My wife and I would like to try sex therapy, but we are unsure what to expect. Can you explain the process? This particular listener asked to remain anonymous. So yeah, I'm often asked what happens in sex therapy, especially for couples. People want to know if they're going to have to do strange things or what might unfold in the office. So I came up with eight fears and misconceptions about couple sex therapy that tend to address the range of questions that I receive on a regular basis. The first question I'm often asked is, will I have to take off my clothes? The answer is no. Sex therapy is a legitimate branch of traditional psychotherapy and never involves nudity or sexual contact of any sort. And if a licensed therapist ever asks you to engage in sexual contact in the office, they are engaging in professional misconduct, which is illegal, and you should report them immediately, and they will certainly lose their license. Other people ask if they'll be forced to have sex with their partner or someone else in the office. The answer, again, is no. Professional sex therapy never involves any sexual contact in the office, as I just mentioned. You will not be asked to have sex with your partner, your therapist, or anyone else while engaging in ethical sex therapy. You may be encouraged to explore giving and receiving pleasure in the privacy of your own home, between sessions, but this is only one small piece of a large, complex therapeutic puzzle. 
Another question I get asked is, will I have to describe all of my past sexual encounters in front of my partner? Here again, the answer is no. Your sexual history is yours. You will not be forced to share any details of your sexual history with your partner that you do not wish to share. I do, however, separate couples to take a comprehensive sexual history that I can use as a therapeutic backdrop upon which to interpret current sexual concerns. As you gain insight, you may choose to share certain aspects of your sexual history with your partner. Appreciating the legacy of your own sexual story is crucial. Allowing your partner to appreciate that legacy can be incredibly powerful. And trusting your partner with that information shows a willingness to tolerate vulnerability, which is a crucial component of psychological intimacy. So no, you don't have to share. Over time, hopefully you will come to appreciate the importance of sharing certain aspects of your sexual past with your partner. But no, you will never be forced to describe any of your past sexual encounters. If a sex therapist is demanding that you do so, I would recommend that you terminate with that provider immediately and find a more ethical provider. Everyone has a sexual story and a good clinician must have the emotional intelligence and the technical skill to give shape to one's sexual story and put it into perspective. My favorite part of what I do is formulating a client's sexual story and reframing it in a therapeutic way. Watching the what I call psychological light bulbs turn on as a result of this process is as exciting to me now as it was when I started practicing more than 25 years ago. Another question I'm asked about the process is, will the therapist shame me for my sexual interests or behaviors? The answer is no, or at least it should be no. If a therapist is shaming you or judging you for your sexual interests, then you are not working with an ethical or well-trained provider. I provide an environment that depathologizes sexual differences and unconventional interests. People carry around enough shame when it comes to sex. They need a therapist who will not judge them or be shocked or disgusted by what they hear. I understand the wide range of sexual interests and behaviors that people may find erotic. I help people come to terms with and understand their eroticism, even if it is not typical or conventional or so-called vanilla. There's no such thing as normal sexuality. Our preferences, practices, and proclivities change throughout the lifespan, although we do come to understand our arousal template by young adulthood or sooner. Everyone has their own sexual map, and regardless of what your arousal template or erotic script is, I help people make friends with that, come to peace with that, and as long as it's not exploitive or illegal, I help people try to incorporate it into their lives in a way that feels manageable and healthy for them. Another question I receive is, will you understand my sexual problem? First and foremost, any sex therapist should have a comprehensive knowledge of human sexual response and the components of sexual identity, gender orientation, intention, desire, arousal, orgasm, and satisfaction. Without this understanding, it is difficult to properly diagnose and or offer a prognosis. A good provider must also know what the many potential barriers are and how to address them, what treatments are available, both pharmacologically surgically, 
and in many other ways, and what the next steps are depending upon at which phase of sexual response someone has a problem, and whether or not that problem is what we call lifelong versus acquired, global versus situational, or organic versus psychogenic. And you want to work with a sex therapist who's comfortable discussing sexual issues, has addressed their own sexual biases, either through supervision or group supervision or their own individual therapy or as part of their training program. So there's a lot to uh, check out when you're going to see a sex therapist for couples work. And although it may seem daunting, I think it's worth it. You're putting your marriage or your relationship and your sexual health in the hands of another person. They must be respectful. They must be knowledgeable. And they must be able to make sense of each of your unique sexual stories. Another question I get often is, what if sex therapy makes things worse? Well, I know this is a common worry that people have, that sex therapy will confirm their suspicion that they're not sexually compatible with their partner, or that they are sexually inadequate, or that they are sexually inhibited. I may identify areas of strength and weakness in the bedroom and also outside of the bedroom. I do hold up the mirror and give honest feedback about the barriers that I see as holding someone back. Honest evaluation of the pros and cons of a sexual and non-sexual relationship will allow clients to develop informed consent. It is never a therapist's job to tell a client to end a relationship unless it is physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive. I tend to lay out the strengths and limitations of a relationship and then help the couple come to their own conclusions based on their own individual values and priorities. If a sex or marital therapist is telling you to get divorced or to not get divorced, and there's no overt sexual, physical, financial, or emotional abuse, then they may be overstepping their bounds and projecting their values onto you. We are human. We do have feelings. We have countertransference. We do sometimes feel like someone would be better off outside of a relationship than in a relationship or vice versa. But it's not our place to share those things unless we do it in a therapeutic way that always gives the client or the patient the ultimate decision. I often hear, what if I get turned on in sex therapy? And I often have some men report that they do indeed get aroused in therapy. I've also had some women report that they are aroused in therapy with me. So many clients, especially men and women, worry that they may become sexually aroused as a result of discussing sexual material that is intimate and private in the office. This is an understandable concern. Although discussion of sexual material is extremely intimate and can be arousing, there's a professional frame that contains overt arousal from interfering. On some occasions, clients do share that they're feeling aroused in the moment, or they'll send me an email afterwards and say that they're feeling turned on upon reflecting on our visit, or that they're masturbating to images of me, or to fantasies that uh, we were engaged in a sexual relationship or a romantic relationship. And I never, ever shame clients for these feelings. 
I invite them, in fact, I welcome that sort of feedback and disclosure because verbally processing the origins of the arousal and helping a client translate those feelings to an appropriate outlet can be extremely therapeutic. So if a doctor or a therapist, again, shames you for sharing feelings of arousal, even related to their work with you, then they're not sophisticated enough to be doing the work that they're doing. This is something that we are trained to handle and can be particularly therapeutic and a really good opportunity to figure some things out. So if your provider is uncomfortable in this area, again, consider terminating and finding a more savvy sex therapist. Another question I get a lot is, will I be forced to hurt my partner's feelings? A lot of people worry that when they get in the room, they're going to have to say things that are going to cause pain in their partner. Some people worry that if they're honest, they will hurt their partner's feelings and that they will never be able to recover. How can I tell her that she's too fat without crushing her self-esteem? How can I tell him that his hairy back turns me off? Although I understand why someone would want to spare their partner's feelings, honesty is almost always the best policy. There are therapeutic and diplomatic ways of addressing turnoffs, and in most cases, the partner already suspects that this may be a barrier. It can be validating to finally hear what you already know. There is no safer place to put your sexual cards on the table and take honest inventory of your sexuality than in the sex therapy office. So there you have it. Those are the eight most common concerns or misperceptions that I hear on a day-to-day basis about sex therapy, especially if you are doing couples therapy. Hopefully, if any of you have been considering reaching out for sex therapy with your partner, you feel a little bit more comfortable and a little bit better informed about what to expect and what to interpret as red flags moving forward. I'm going to move on now and talk about some other themes and types of questions that I've been receiving. And I noticed that people have particular interest in anal sex and a lot of questions about paraphilia. So I decided instead of shortchanging those two topics, I'm going to do a unique episode on each of those areas. So coming up in the pipeline will be an episode on anal sex, the risks, the benefits, the appeal, and everything else under the sun that you want to know about anal sex. And I'm also going to do a specific episode on paraphilia, explain what that is, how we diagnose it, how we treat it and the clinical repercussions of working with patients with paraphilia. But for now, I'm going to move on and read another one of my listener questions. This next question comes from Susan. She says, my boyfriend is into golden showers, period. I think it's weird, and I wonder if he is a deviant. Well, Susan, golden showers or the interest in golden showers are more common than you might think. There's actually a clinical name for this. It's called urophilia, which translates literally into the love of urine. 
And in my 25 years plus as a sex therapist, I've treated probably, I don't know, 35 to 40 at least people with this particular erotic interest. For some, it is shameful and humiliating. For others, it is empowering and liberating. Here's some research for you, Susan. There was research conducted at San Francisco State University in 2011, and it reported that just over one-third of approximately 1,600 female participants in the so-called kink behavior community, mostly associated with BDSM, reported having participated in some form of urine play, also referred to as water sports. So... Of the women who identified themselves as part of the kink community, one-third admitted to engaging in water play. So of people who are affiliated with the BDSM community, it is not uncommon to incorporate water sports in their sexual activity. For some individuals, bodily functions such as peeing, pooping, burping, farting, etc. become eroticized. My clients have reported that incorporating certain bodily functions into sex allows them to more fully experience all aspects of their partner. They have shared with me that they feel like they're able to connect to the essence of their partner by coming in contact with these primal functions. In certain extreme cases, they become fixated and dependent on this and are unable to respond to conventional sexual stimuli. So Susan, one question I have for you is whether or not your boyfriend needs golden showers in order to complete the phases of sexual response. If golden showers are a requirement for your boyfriend to complete the phases of sexual response, then this may be clinically concerning, not because it's inherently deviant necessarily, but because it limits his response and his repertoire in terms of experiencing pleasure. So he's sort of in putting himself or finding himself in a really small, rigid box. And if it's something that you don't enjoy or don't find erotic, then it could be a deal breaker in the end, if that's something that he absolutely requires. If it's something that he likes, but not something that he needs, I'm confident that you and he could compromise in some form. And this is something that I help couples do every day. If you are interested in contacting me, I would be happy to give you and your boyfriend a free 30-minute session in which to discuss how to negotiate this and how to assess his level of dependency on this particular sexual interest or fetish. My clients report that being willing to share such a typically private and personal act with another person suggests a willingness to be completely vulnerable. And vulnerability, power differentials, and humiliation are key themes in many BDSM relationships. One of my patients reported, I feel a deeper connection to my partner when she is willing to drink my urine. Some like to be peed on while others like to do the peeing. A range of behaviors include peeing on someone's face, into their mouth, bathing in urine, or just urinating in their presence. As I mentioned, some enjoy drinking urine. For some, the erotic interest in urine is specific. For others, they also have erotic interest in feces and defecation. This is called coprophilia. 
Some of my agents engage in infantilism, which I did an episode on, if you recall the ABDL episode, where they urinate and defecate in diapers. I did have a patient who was very sexually aroused by other people's feces, and he would be regressive and use feces to finger paint on the wall as he played on the floor. I did have a patient who would travel to truck stops in the hopes of finding an unflushed toilet so he could find other people's feces, remove them from the toilet, and then use it as lubricant to masturbate. I imagine this may be quite disturbing to hear for my average listener, but there is a subculture of people to whom this would not be at all disturbing. The concern I had for this particular patient was sanitary because he was not protecting himself hygienically from potential germs that might have been in the unknown owner's feces. So yes, this can get pretty hardcore. Nowadays, it's fairly simple to find a partner who shares erotic interest in just about anything you're into. Websites like FetLife.com and others allow people with unconventional sexual interests to find each other, communicate, and hook up. Water sports even have their own genre of porn. If the porn industry produces movies to highlight a particular fetish, you know it has growing appeal. It's also easy to go to a sex dungeon and initiate urine play. There are, however, health risks associated with this particular fetish, urophilia, just so you are aware, Susan. Urine is only sterile if a person is healthy. It is possible to spread fungal, bacterial, and viral infections through urine. The most common method of transmission is through an open wound, such as a burn or a scrape, meaning that the infection will spread more easily on the body than in the mouth. The most significant health threat from this sort of sex play is hepatitis B. Herpes can also be transmitted even if a person is asymptomatic. And if infected urine is ingested into the throat, people can contract chlamydia or gonorrhea. So to answer your question, Susan, this is not an inherently deviant sexual interest. There are plenty of people who share this erotic kink. As I said, there's a whole genre of porn, and it is safe for the most part, and would only be clinically distressing to me if your partner was solely dependent on this as his only means of reaching orgasm. So it might be time to talk to your boyfriend, Susan, about whether this is something that he enjoys or something that he needs. And as I mentioned earlier, I'd be happy to talk with you both at no charge to see if I can help you understand this better and find some sort of happy medium or determine if there is uh, any way that this can not be a deal breaker for you. My next question comes from Anne Marie in Illinois. She says, my husband jokes around with his buddies and me that he feels entitled to blowjobs, but is not often inspired to return the favor. 
Well, Anne-Marie, I have to admit I've heard similar sentiments in my office over the last 25 years. There are certainly cohorts of men who feel entitled to oral stimulation, yet are unmotivated to, as you say, return the favor. These are the guys who tend to have traditional notions about gender roles, such as a woman's places in the kitchen, etc., and are generally less sensitive to their partner's overall sexual satisfaction. Especially for men with erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, or insecurity about their penis size, giving oral sex can be an efficient go-to when intercourse is unreliable. A 37-year-old patient recently told me, I'm not well endowed, if you know what I mean, and I'm a quick trigger, so I've become very good at using my tongue. I've perfected a mind-blowing technique. Rather than knocking cunnilingus, I hear men lament that giving oral sex is off limits. In other words, they want to give oral pleasure, but women are the ones who shut it down. It's not uncommon for women to feel self-conscious about receiving oral sex due to potentially offensive odors, appearance of their genitals, or a belief that oral sex is dirty. Many women feel that receiving oral sex is the most intimate sexual act, and they say that it feels more intimate to them than intercourse. Many women now are self-conscious about the shape and size of their labia, their inner and outer lips, the labia majora and the labia minora. And they go and have labiaplasty at plastic surgeons' offices to make their lips either bigger or longer or puffier or, or thinner or fatter. And these trends tend to mirror trends depicted in pornography. Many women, however, believe that giving blowjobs is non-negotiable, especially in the beginning of a sexual relationship. Women often feel that if they don't stimulate men orally, it will reduce their value as a sexual partner. Many of my male patients report that their wives or girlfriends gave what they call enthusiastic blowjobs in the beginning and then stopped or significantly decreased frequency once a commitment was cemented. A lot of my male patients refer to this as a bait and switch. As women age, they do feel less obligated to give oral sex. I hear things like, I'm 55 years old and I don't want to do that anymore. There are plenty of women, however, who genuinely enjoy giving oral sex and are happy to pleasure their men in this way. Some women use oral sex as a bone if they are too tired for intercourse or don't want to be penetrated, or especially if they experience pelvic pain or have a chronic illness that prevents coitus, the opportunity to pleasure their partners orally comes in very handy. Increasingly, young women perceive giving oral sex as no big deal. They give blowjobs instead of having intercourse because it eliminates pregnancy fears and they get attention from boys. Younger and younger girls, age 10, 11, 12, 13, are now giving blowjobs at school or on the school bus. By middle school, this is quite common. There's something called a rainbow party. You might have heard of this. It's when young girls each wear a different shade of lipstick and leave lip prints on a boy's penis so that when it's over, he has a rainbow display of different colors on the shaft of his penis. 
My next question comes from Gerald in Texas. Gerald wrote in, My wife and I have been trying to conceive for more than four years. It has taken a toll on our sex life. Have you seen this before? Well, Gerald, yes, absolutely. Infertility takes an excruciating toll on sexual health and satisfaction. When people are trying to make a baby, sex becomes for procreative purposes only. So they sort of unwittingly internalize this notion of why have sex if we can't make a baby. They also internalize the notion that their bodies are broken, that they're either not masculine or not feminine. And because they're broken, they don't deserve pleasure. Sometimes the pressure around you know, we have to conceive, this has to work, I'm ovulating, we only have a short window here. Sometimes that pressure can cause performance anxiety in men and distraction and a rush and irritability in women who want the man to be efficient and deliver his semen and not lollygag around with foreplay or an attempt to savor or luxuriate in that encounter. There is also a sense of dread and anxiety that can manifest for couples when they're unable to conceive and they almost feel like it's too painful to have sex because it is a reminder. It is symbolic of the reality that their bodies are not working the way they are supposed to, at least in their mind. I've treated many, many couples with infertility, and this is a real complex issue. I tell them that sex is important, whether it's for recreation or procreation, that it is protective for their relationship, whether they have kids or not. And that it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole of that's just something we don't deserve or something that's not available to us because our focus is on making a baby. And because we can't make a baby, why bother with that? I have seen couples split up over this. I've seen couples where they haven't been able to gracefully support each other, where one is more invested in having a baby than the other and comes across as insensitive to the one who's more invested. I've seen people blame each other if they're able to identify that there's a particular female situation or a male situation that may be causing the infertility. I've seen people develop resentment that they express overtly and covertly. I've seen men either not be able to get hard or stay hard or not be able to ejaculate because they are experiencing so much pressure and there's so much shame and they feel like their sperm is contaminated or not superior in some form. So yes, this is a very, very complex issue. I'm not at all surprised that you're experiencing some sexual consequences around your infertility. I would strongly encourage you to go to see a sex therapist sooner than later. I'm working with a couple of couples right now, actually, who have basically stopped having sex because it's no longer fun. It's totally fraught with dread and anxiety and a sense of hopelessness. So it's natural for 
fertility problems to manifest sexually. I offer free 15-minute phone consultations. So if you would like to schedule a time to chat with me, I can give you some guidance in terms of specific things to look for in a therapist or help you find someone in your area. The final question of today comes from one of my female listeners who requested to remain anonymous. She said that her boyfriend keeps trying to get her to squirt and that she noticed by going through his history on his computer that he has a particular interest in so-called squirting porn. She wants to know if squirting is real and whether all women can do it. So let me give you a little bit of information about female ejaculation. Thanks to the porn industry, urban legend, and general sexual misinformation, there are indeed many questions about female ejaculation, also known as squirting. Is it pee? Is it normal? How can I make my girlfriend squirt? How can I stop myself from squirting? Is it a made-up thing? It feels like there are more questions than answers. Today I'm going to separate fact from fiction and leave you with the juicy truth about this misunderstood subject. I will also add my spin on how this craze and the industry that supports it is creating a new type of performance anxiety for women. Female ejaculation remains a controversial topic in pop culture. Some experts have debunked its existence, while others insist that it is a natural physiologic response to stimulation of the G-spot. The G-spot, also called the Grafenberg spot, named for German gynecologist Ernst Grafenberg, is described as an erogenous area of the vagina that, when properly stimulated, may lead to intense orgasms and expulsion of fluid. The G-spot is located 5 to 8 centimeters up the front or anterior wall between the vaginal opening and the urethra. Like female ejaculation, the existence of the G-spot has not been scientifically proven, but is commonly accepted as existing. Increased cultural interest in squirting has led to the eroticization of female ejaculation. Squirting has its own dedicated genre of porn, as evidenced by the fact that my uh, listener wrote in about having discovered porn of this nature on her boyfriend's computer. There are even lists of porn's best and most impressive squirt girls, with titles such as High School Squirting Ballerina, Femdom Makes Squirt Slave, and Lesbian Squirt Machine. It is abundantly clear that there is a niche market for men who enjoy the gush. Interestingly, this craze has created a sort of performance anxiety for women, the pressure to squirt. Whereas 25 years ago, my female clients were embarrassed and ashamed when what they believed was wetting the bed during sex, now women are desperate and determined to master the art of squirting. So what is squirting? Squirting occurs when women expel fluid through the paraurethral ducts, also known as the skein's glands or female prostate. The skein's gland is very similar to the male prostate, and the fluid it expels is similar to male prostatic fluid. 
The fluid is clear in color and some report an ammonia-like odor. Some have likened the skein's glands to a sponge in that it expands as more fluid is produced. When it expands, the skein's glands puts pressure on the bladder. This causes the sensation of needing to pee. When a woman squirts, the fluid travels through a portion of the bladder, so it may actually feel like she is indeed urinating. Research published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2014 reports that data based on ultrasonic bladder monitoring and biochemical analyses show that female ejaculation consists of a mixture of urine and prostatic secretions. So although it is not pee, there is some urine present in the fluid. Some men specifically seek out squirters on hookup apps like Tinder, xmatch.com, and get it on. Women who can reliably squirt are considered sexually in the know and are considered superior bedfellows with newfound status. Many men still feel insecure about whether or not a woman experiences orgasm. With a squirter, there is no ambiguity. For some men, squirting equals proof of their manhood and sexual prowess. The indisputable fact that they have adequately pleasured their partner is important to them. Of course, there are some men who are turned off by female ejaculation and have even ended relationships over it. One client told me, I'm the guy. I'm the one who's supposed to squirt, not her. Like most things sexual, some like it and some don't. One man's taboo is another man's treasure. Some women are self-conscious about squirting and avoid climax to ensure that no fluid is expelled. Others try and try and try to no avail. Men and women spend billions of dollars annually to open the floodgates. There are hundreds of sex toys designed to facilitate squirting. Products such as Love Honey, Oh My Bod, and Rock Box Finger Thrusting G-Spot Vibrators all but promise squirting. There is an unmistakable call to action. But what effect is this pressure to squirt having on real people? In my office, it is experienced as a genuine source of anxiety. Hundreds of female clients report that they find squirting porn on their boyfriend's computer. So my anonymous guest is not alone. That their husbands are over-invested in getting them to squirt and question their pleasure in absence of squirting. For some men, it has taken on fetishistic proportions that make it an absolute requirement. Even the women who can ejaculate are sometimes told it is not enough or lacks force. Porn sometimes depicts women ejaculating across the room with the near force of a power washer. As with many aspects of porn, sex is depicted in unrealistic ways. Both men and women fall into the traps of trying to reproduce what they see in porn rather than using humor and creativity to create and sustain their own version of sex. I am not pathologizing an erotic response to squirting. I am merely pointing out how the pressure to squirt may be experienced as a burden in an already fragile sexual dynamic. If you can squirt and your partner loves it, good for you. You don't need me. But if the presence or absence of squirting is causing conflict in your relationship, let me know. 
Maybe I can help. Well, in the interest of time, I think I'll stop there. I have so many more great questions from my listeners, and I will do my best to answer them all and do justice to each. If you have any reactions to the content from today's episode, please let me know. I'd love to know if these episodes are inspiring you, if these episodes are making you uncomfortable, whatever it is, just give me a shout out and let me know how you are experiencing sex savvy. I will see you next week. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.